0: Justice was never this extracurricular thing, like being a good Christian means, you know, don't have sex and don't cuss. And then if you want to be really good, then you do justice. No, it was like when we heard the gospel, it was, wait a minute. God heard the cries of the slaves in Egypt. His heart was moved with compassion. God doesn't like people oppressed in slavery. That's hope.
1: Welcome to the Discipleshift Podcast. We're on a mission to discover what it means to authentically follow Christ in the 21st century. So we're speaking with significant Christian leaders from around the world to pursue wholehearted discipleship. I'm Krish Kandai. Today I'm backstage at the Music City Centre, a 2.1 million square foot convention centre in the heart of downtown Nashville. It's a gleaming icon of glass and concrete. The stated aim of the building is that it would create significant economic benefit for the citizens of Greater Nashville. But walking up to it today, I came across both homeless people sleeping rough on benches outside, and also a billboard proclaiming the brand new Taylor Swift Education Centre. That's an interesting juxtaposition of experiences for me as a newcomer to the city. Walking around this cavernous convention centre, there's an omnipresent country music everywhere we go. To get away from that noise, I had to take refuge in a service hallway to interview Micah Borne before he goes on stage to perform at a major Christian leadership event. Micah grew up in Long Beach, California and was immersed in hip-hop for as long as he can remember. This influence is clearly seen through his personal journey of artistic expression. Micah began rapping while attending Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. From there he began blending and bending genres as he incorporated spoken word poetry, rhythm and blues and funk into his music. Micah has performed at the University of Texas, is a two-time first place winner of the Intercollegiate National Religious Broadcasting Competition and has done quite well for himself in countless poetry slams across the country. Micah is a Christian creative. In addition to performing poetry and music, he often speaks and teaches on creative writing, pursuing justice and the way of Jesus. In partnership with World Relief and the Justice Conference, Micah has been able to share his passions and gifts all over the world. Michael likes to quote Proverbs 24:16, A righteous man falls 7 times and rises again. Michael explains that this is the way he strives to live his life. He is a broken man and he knows it, made righteous only by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord, on the cross. This is the message at the heart of his work that drives him to always keep creating. In this interview, we talk about the links between discipleship, vocation and justice. We speak about why racial equality matters for Christians and why knowing your calling might still mean you eat cereal for most of your meals. Before you listen to the interview with Micah, I want you to hear him in action as a spoken word artist.
0: A lot of people see justice as the most futile thing you can do with your life. Give your life completely to business and you see the money piling up. Be a health nut, eat right, go to the gym, and your muscles will grow and your body will look good and you'll see results. But when it comes to justice, it seems like you just can't get ahead. You patch up one hole and something else rips open. You bring peace to one region and war breaks out in another. You rebuild after an earthquake and a tsunami hits. And you work, and you work, and you work, and there's never any profit. There's no bank where you can store a surplus amount of justice in. Stability is never permanent. Something always tips and people always ask, is it even worth it? And that question, Though understandable, it's, I mean, quite frankly, it's ridiculous. And it rarely comes from those who are actually tired from pursuing justice and not just tired of the idea. It rarely comes from people who've labored for years and have good reason to ask it. And you know why they never ask? Those type of people become friends with those who suffer. Family, even. Because it's one thing to wonder if someone else's freedom is worth fighting for. But when you begin to identify with that someone else, commune with them, that's when the question is no longer worth asking. That's when it becomes offensive even. What do you mean, is it worth my time? That doesn't even deserve an answer. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many times you fail. I don't care how little progress is made. You never stop fighting for your own.
1: So, we are in a back corridor in Music City. We're surrounded by bits of insulation and ventilation, but I'm sat on the floor to get some quiet in the middle of a crazy busy conference with... Micah Bournet and uh, we're so excited I've been a, a fan of yours since 2013 when I saw you speaking and performing at the Justice Conference in LA you blew me away I'd never come across that form of poetry live before and I just love the way that you just inspired us to think and act differently so it's a pleasure to have you on the Discipleship Shift podcast Uh, Micah, could you tell us your journey to faith? How did you become a Christian? I've been
0: going to church since the womb. (laughs) Uh, Both of my parents are strong believers. And so I I can't really remember a time in life where the Christian community and the church wasn't a significant part of my life. So I went Sunday school all the way through when I graduated. And it wasn't like one particular moment where I remember walking to the altar as much as it was just as I got older in middle school and high school, just starting to see a lot of the things that I was taught as truth, seeing them play out in my life, and other people's lives. I was public schooled my whole life. So just having friends who weren't taught to think or act or believe the same, and then just seeing the difference between what it meant to follow Jesus and people who didn't, just seeing the truth of that lived out, it was kind of a process of like, yeah,
1: I, I do believe these things I was taught, so yeah. That's fascinating. I became a Christian in my teenage years and looking around now, many of my peers that became a Christian at the same time as me or were Christians before, they haven't kind of gone on with the faith. They've kind of stepped away. Has that been your experience too? And if so, what do you think made the difference for you to continue on with your faith? I have a lot of friends who have walked away. And I have a
0: good amount of friends who've stayed as well. For me, I'm I'm always learning, and my faith definitely went through some crises. <laughs> hmm. uh, I went to Bible college with this idea that I was gonna come out an apologetic ninja, like, <laughs> oh man, I'm just gonna learn all of these things, and every conversation I get in with a non-believer or an atheist, like by the end, I'm gonna have all the answers, and. Actually, just the opposite happened. When I really started to study theology, I became aware of the foolishness of the gospel. And approaching it all intellectually and logically wasn't working for me. And one of the things that really helped was when I started engaging with Creativity in college, when I started writing poetry and music and understanding God as a creative, miraculous, mysterious being, that that takes place in a part of our humanity that's not only intellectual. Because when I was approaching it primarily as an intellectual exercise of knowing the right theology, um, systematic theology, all these things by themselves, it always fell short. Because if we're talking about human logic alone, virgins don't get pregnant (laughs) <laughs> that's that's not a thing, mm. right? If we're talking about human logic alone, dead people do not come back to life. It is impossible to walk on water. And what I realized was in my attempt to be knowledgeable and, and, you know, just be this Christian with all the answers, I was trying to strip all of the things that required faith out of my faith, to strip all of the miraculous, all of the supernatural, all of the spooky spirituality out of my faith until I really got to 1 Corinthians 1 and realized, wait a minute, if I approach my faith in a way that I can make it make logical sense to everyone, even non-believers, then I'm not actually preaching the gospel. Because in First Corinthians 1, it says that God intentionally designed the yes. gospel to buck against human logic, to humble everyone, yes. so that no person could boast, right? Yes. It, and so I realized, oh, dang, you know, since in our arrogance, we got puffed up and rejected God, it pleased God to use the foolishness of the gospel. And then it says, the foolishness of God God is wiser than the wisdom of man mm-hmm. and so that's when I realized you know what I can study this all I want there comes a point where you have to accept things in faith and you have to be comfortable with the fact that the gospel is by design foolish and bucking against human logic that's not to say that there's never a place mm-hmm. to intellectually engage with scripture or the you know historical accuracies of the biblical narratives there's a place for that but it has to be connected To the heart, to the spiritual, to the creative side of God. And yeah, that's why for me, creativity is so important because there are things in this life that we know, but we know with our heart and our mind. We can't know it with just our mind. Mm -hmm. There are truths. There are times where we have intuition, where we just get a feeling about something and we have no quote unquote evidence or reason, but we know, like, get out of here, or this is not a safe environment, or this is a good thing, right? I ask people all the time, you know, how do you know someone loves you or your spouse loves you? I mean, you can say, oh, well, they do this for me and they say this for me. Well, people can do nice things and say nice things, but there's a knowledge that comes from this. This is intangible. I just know. I feel
1: it. I know it with my heart. I know it. And so... Yeah, it's fascinating. As you're speaking, I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. So C.S. Lewis writes these amazing intellectually cogent arguments for the faith Mm -hmm. in a book like Mere Christianity Mm -hmm. or The Problem of Pain Mm -hmm. or Miracles. And they are brilliant books. They've helped so many people grapple with the big questions, the big objections, the faith defeaters, as some people call them. Mm -hmm. But probably his most widely read books Mm -hmm. are mythological fantasies. Yeah, yeah. And he's using that kind of creative space, not necessarily to logically build a case with Christianity, but to invite you into an imaginative world mm-hmm. that makes better sense of the world that we live in. So I see in you a really interesting combination that you've got this history of training to be a I love it, apologetic ninja mm-hmm. <laughs> and and yet you're using the creative arts, you're using poetry, you're using rap to invite people to see the world from another perspective. So I think that's a really powerful combination. And often people go all in on one or the other, don't they? So, you know, I, I could think of the apologists that are the most famous maybe in the world. Very few of them are great at the kind of creative side. They've gone down the intellectual. So I love your combination. Tell me a little bit about how you discovered that this was gonna be your vocation. This was gonna be your call to serve God through spoken word. How did you know this was what God wanted for you?
0: yeah i I never did. <laughs> uh, I don't really see like um, like calling. I don't really see it like that. There wasn't a moment where I'm like, "This is what I'm supposed to do with my life. Really what it was. I grew up loving music, specifically hip hop, and I listened to a lot of hip-hop as a kid. And then when I got to college, I started writing my own hip hop and rap songs, but it was just a hobby. It was something I did after school, on the weekends, and my friend had some recording equipment in his dorm room. So we would just go and write songs and, you know, it was just fun. But in kind of just playing around, we would show our other friends the music that we were making. And I just got a lot of encouragement from the community. They're like, hey, like, I know y'all were just having fun, but... That was actually pretty good. So I was like, oh, okay, cool. But then fast forward, so I started writing my first year of university, but then it was my junior year. My third year, I was at home. I went to school in Chicago, but I was at home in Long Beach, California. And a buddy of mine invited me to an open mic for spoken word poetry. For those who aren't familiar, spoken word poetry, it's poetry meant to be performed instead of read off of a page so it's kind of got a theatrical element to it you use a lot of nonverbal communication your whole body speaks you know so I had seen it on YouTube but i had never seen it in person so I go to this open mic just as someone in the audience like I was not participating i had never written a spoken word poem in my life and it was the craziest thing because I had been in a lot of youth groups and accountability groups and like Christian environments that were supposed to be welcoming and inviting to authenticity and vulnerability. But even in those environments, you know, you want to be honest, but you also are afraid. You're afraid that people might judge you as, like, not a good Christian for doing some of the things you did or thinking some of the things you think or having some doubts about the faith. And so I go to this event, and it was not a Christian event at all. And there were people from all kind of different ethnicities and, and belief systems. But person after person got on stage and they shared poetry about things that I didn't think you were allowed to say in public and it was like people were reading my mind like they had like broke into my room and read my journals right and I was like wait first of all it was an epiphany to realize I'm not the only person who who thinks that who's been through that who's felt that way I'm not alone as I thought I was in this world. That alone was liberating. It was like to realize, man, I'm up here hiding. I'm wearing this mask. But it was a space where you were allowed to take the mask off and people weren't throwing stones at you. And people were actually saying, I relate to you. I've been there. I've been through that. So that's what first sparked my interest in it. And then so after a while of being there, I thought if I am benefiting so much from other people's courage to share their stories and other people's vulnerability. Maybe someone else could benefit if I found the courage to share my story. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I got into it. I started that night. I decided I want to try this art form out simply so I can participate in this exchange Mm -hmm. um, so I can contribute as well as receive. So that's what I did. I started writing poetry about my experiences and going to open mics and sharing. And after a while, I did that for a few months. Then I ended up At my school, summer break was over, so I went back to school, and I met a few other poets, and we started a poetry writing club, and that really encouraged my art form to grow. Then after that, there's these things called poetry slams, which are competitions of spoken word poetry. So after writing for about a year, I had enough materials, so I started competing in poetry slams and just doing really well for myself it was weird i was just really good from the beginning <laughs> <laughs> i love your humility there that's sure you
1: just have to name it
0: you were really good i was like i mean how did you know you were good because i kept winning <laughs> like um I, I wasn't really good from the second i started writing but when i first started competing so i was writing for about a year um spoken word poetry that is but like the first six or seven slams i competed in i won wow. so i was just like man i'm I'm really good at this, I guess. (laughs) And so um, that's what really sparked the idea that, hey, maybe this could be something more than just a hobby. But, you know, there's all these stereotypes about artists, especially poets. Nobody makes a living as a poet, right? Very few people. And you starving artist stereotype. And it's always a struggle. So I thought, you know, let me do something more practical so I tried a lot of different things. You know, I ended up graduating. I had a degree in communication. So I applied. I wanted to go into radio or TV. Mm. Um, I applied for the Peace Corps. I almost went, but I had health issues that prevented me from going to the mm. Peace Corps. I didn't get hired at any of the jobs I applied to. I was striking out left and right. Mm. And I reached this point where I ran out of money and I had to move back in with my parents. And I thought to myself, as impractical as it seems, if I pursue a career as an artist and it doesn't work, then I will be unemployed living with my parents like I am right now. Like, I literally have nothing to lose. And so it wasn't so much that I felt called to it or God saying, this is what you're supposed to do. It was like, well, everything else I tried didn't work, so I might as well try this. And so I started going in that direction and doors started opening. I'll never forget, when I was in college, there was a guy who came to speak at our school. And he actually was the guy who invented VeggieTales. And so his name is Phil Vischer. And he goes, you know, some of you guys... You have this clear vision. You've heard the voice of God saying you're supposed to do this with your life or you're supposed to go here. Mm. But if you're anything like me, I prayed and prayed and prayed and just nothing. It was unclear. And he goes, but I realized God doesn't really care what I do as long as I'm honoring God in all things I do. Mm. So he goes, after so long of not hearing anything, I just decided, you know what? Love God and do what you want. And he goes, if loving God comes first, then do whatever you want. Some things you do in life will work. Some things won't, but you'll learn from all of it. And if you're operating with integrity, living as we're called to live, then it really doesn't matter if you go to grad school or not. If you become a lawyer or a doctor, if you become a Mm -hmm. poet or a pastor, if loving God comes first, then God can bless you no matter what you choose to do. And obviously if later you do feel that clear vision, then obey that. But Mm -hmm. for me, there's never been any significant life decision that I've been confident, like this is what God wants me to do. It's more like, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do.
1: I've been praying. I think both of these options are good. So I got to pick one. <laughs> I'm listening to you as a parent. And one of my sons is very passionate about fine art. And as a parent, we're worried, I guess, as many would be about the starving artist yeah. thing that you spoke about. What would you say? What would your encouragement be to parents? They want the best for their children. They want to see them flourish and grow. They want to see them honor God. How can we help to nurture our children to become all that God wants them to be? What, what would you say? Yeah,
0: I would say that a lot of people and a lot of parents, understandably so, their advice is coming from a place of fear. They don't want their children to struggle financially. Mm-hmm. They don't want their children to to go through what they deem to be unnecessary pain. My mom hates what I do (laughs) because I I have a sickness. I have ulcerative colitis, and that's really costly. And in America, we don't have universal health care, so... She wants me to have a job because certain jobs provide really nice health insurance, right? And financially, you know, my financial situation is up and down. Sometimes I'll have a lot of invitations. Sometimes I won't. I have been eating cereal for dinner for months at a time, you know, and then there's other times where I'm doing well. But my mom doesn't understand it. She's like, you know, you're capable of getting a what she would call a real job. And for me, I think it's comfort I found is probably the biggest enemy of people really living out the radical lives of following Jesus, of trusting God. Because comfort doesn't seem sinful, right? It doesn't seem evil. It's not like, oh, I'm disobeying God because I'm out here sinning and doing unjust things. It's more like, Oh, I'm not hurting anybody, mm. you know. But I've seen so many passionate people, be it artists or anything else, who have not pursued the thing they are most passionate about because it seemed too risky and because they had financial responsibilities and they were just afraid, or their parents mm. put pressure on them to do something that was more responsible, quote unquote. Mm. And again, I love my mom to death, but. If I followed her advice, I never would have pursued a career in the arts. She would have much rather it just been a hobby. But these are the doors that God was opening. And now I've seen God use it so much. But the thing is, the life of faith is not one of comfort. It is one of risk. It is one of sacrifice. And I've found that in a lot of Western cultured nations, the arts in general are seen as secondary. And they're not respected. When we're actually looking at Any society in history, Mm. the arts are a pillar, Mm. you know, they're so central. But the idea is that if your child, for example, has ambition to be a doctor Mm. or a lawyer, people don't say things like, oh, they're chasing their dream. Mm. You know, people say okay, they're going to school and they're pursuing their career. Yeah. But if your child has ambition to be a singer or a poet, oh, you know, they're they're chasing the dream, they're chasing fame, or they're going to be a starving artist, you know? And it's like, I mean, we don't call people in college starving lawyers when they took out so many loans, right? Yeah. And they're like, they're broke too, you know? It's like, but they're taking a risk yeah. because law school is expensive yeah. and they might not pass the bar, you know? So it's like, I just think it's, again, this idea that the intellect is primary and creative things are optional secondary you know hors d'oeuvres or cherry on top or dessert Mm. and I'm like no if your child shows interest in creative things I would say throw all of your support behind that and don't be afraid of them failing at things Mm. because they will learn they will grow and it's much better than them living a life of comfort and not
1: taking risks and doing what's safe. That's so helpful. So one of the ways we disciple our kids is encourage them to pursue what God is calling them to, whatever the risk. Mm -hmm. That's so helpful. I want to talk about, I guess, a a bunch of stereotypes and words that are put onto what some people call millennials. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the words around that include the snowflake generation, Mm -hmm. the entitled generation. I find that quite problematic. How do you feel when people label people in your age bracket Mm -hmm. the snowflake generation? You know, <laughs> humans, we do things
0: in cycles because every generation, when they're young, they buck against the status quo, right? They're revolutionary. And then they grow up and they tisk, tisk, tisk at the younger generation and say, oh, you guys don't know anything. And you guys are so dumb, or you guys don't make any sense, or you guys are soft, or what happened to real integrity or morality or whatever it is. And Every generation has their blind spots. And and fact of the matter is, a lot of our parents, when they were our age, their parents didn't understand them. Mm-hmm. Because they were hippies and Black Panthers and revolutionaries. <laughs> and, and you know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. I mean, you look back in the 70s and y'all was doing drugs left and right. You know what I'm saying? Like, y'all was at Woodstock getting <laughs> drunk as high as ever. Yeah. You know? And then you grew up and you shake your head Mm. at the younger generation because you don't understand them. Now, hippies at Woodstock were getting drunk and high, but also they had a lot of things about them that were good and beautiful, right? And they understood the world and creativity and they were pushing for peace and love. And so every generation has certain values that are good and certain things about their culture and their generation that are flawed. Mm. And so I look and I'm like, you know what? When we see demonstrations in America recently, high school kids who were leading the charge on gun reform because their classmates got murdered Mm. and they're upset and they're not out here being stupid teenagers. They're out here petitioning politicians to do something. Mm. You know what I mean? So I kind of roll my eyes because Mm. there was a time where whether it's in the arts or any other part of youth culture, like there was a time when hip-hop wasn't considered real music. Mm. But before that, there was a time when jazz wasn't considered real music, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And it's like whoever's in the old guard doesn't respect the new thing. And so I'm just, I roll my eyes and say, whatever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good answer. Production of the Disciple Shift Podcast is made possible by our friends at World Relief. World Relief is a global humanitarian relief and development organization that partners with local churches around the world to end the cycle of suffering and By transforming lives and building sustainable communities. With initiatives that focus on disaster response, health and child development, refugee and immigration services, economic development and peace building. World Relief works holistically with local churches to stand for the sick, the widowed, the orphaned, the alienated, the displaced, the devastated, the marginalized and the disenfranchised. Learn more about World Relief and the part you can play in serving the vulnerable and the marginalized by visiting their website worldrelief.org. As I listen to you and and watch the videos on your site, the kind of recurring theme through so much of your poetry and rap seems to be your passion for justice. Why is that an important part of your Christian life? Because I'm black in America. (laughs) So
0: this is the thing. When I first started writing, I was not intentionally writing about issues of justice. I was just writing about my life and my life experiences. And as a young black male who dresses hip-hop and embraces hip-hop culture. So many of America's worst stereotypes, people apply to me when they see me Mm -hmm. and how they treat me and the assumptions they make about me. So when I started writing about my experiences... I was talking about justice issues, but I didn't realize it because I wasn't like, I'm gonna write a poem about justice and institutional racism. I'm like, I'm gonna write a poem about what this dude said to me last week, <laughs> you know? Mm. And then it was when other people saw me perform and share my poetry, they would say things like, Man, I really love the way you talk about justice. And, and I was like, What? <laughs> like, it was kind of a buzzword. But as I grew in my faith, and again, I think for black American Christians, It wasn't like, oh, we value justice because this is like a theological Mm. conviction in Scripture, although it is. Like when I look in Scripture and I see the prophets and Amos like rebuking Israel for the way they've turned aside from the needy in the gate and neglected the poor. I see it like it is my theology. But also when black American slaves started to hear the stories of Scripture, Mm. started to hear Christ and how he engaged with the poor, it was like, oh, my gosh, Mm. justice was never this extracurricular thing like being a good Christian means you know don't have sex and don't cuss and then if you want to be really good then you do justice no it was like when we heard the gospel it was wait a minute God heard the cries of the slaves in Egypt his heart was moved with compassion God doesn't like people oppressed in slavery that's hope to people who are oppressed and slaves. God said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. We've been last our whole existence. God says, you know, that to serve the needy and love the needy and Jesus hung out with not the big fancy folks, but the poor folks and the outcast. And so we just heard the stories from scripture and said, Jesus was all about this. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, that was the primary reason where I feel like why else would Slaves adopt the religion of their masters. Mm. It was amazing as much as Christianity had been used to encourage slavery and to justify it, twist it. It's inescapable. You start talking about the stories of scripture and it's like, "Mm, you might be saying this, but we got ears. We can see for ourselves what Jesus was actually about. Mm. And so it was like, yeah, I think that as a black American Christian, I just see Jesus. It feels very relatable. The story of who Jesus was and so many stories from scripture, it was like, of course, this is central to what this faith is. It's, you know, liberating the captives. And that's exactly when John the Baptist was doubting if Jesus was the Messiah, because he was in jail, like, man, I'm not sure anymore. And what does Jesus say? You know, he says, you know, tell them the blind see, the lame hear. The good news is preached to the poor. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, like, that's it. That was Jesus's way of confirming. He wasn't just like, yeah, of course, I'm the Messiah. He was like, no, like, the poor are being loved. The lame, the outcast, hope is being brought to them. Because that's, and John was like, okay, yeah, the Messiah has come then, (laughs)
1: you know, like, you know. Why why do you think so many of us miss that? That discipleship is often reduced to Me having a personal prayer life, me reading the Bible every day. Maybe if I'm generous, I'll I'll give 10% Mm -hmm. after tax to my church. You know, that's me doing discipleship. Mm -hmm. But the way you talk about it, as justice is a central theme throughout all of Scripture, Mm -hmm. how come we've missed that for so long? Um, Again, I can only speak for the American context,
0: and I know that the gospel has been talked about as such a personal, individualistic thing. And in some senses, I understand and agree that you're supposed to have a personal relationship with God and invite Jesus into your heart. But I think it's been an overemphasis on that to where when you think about it, I've been in so many worship services on a Sunday morning where people will be like, close your eyes and just act like no one else is in the room. Like it's just you and God. And I'm like, no. Yeah. What, it, why did you come to church? Exactly. That is not what we're supposed to do. The church is to, to fellowship with the community, you know? And so I think that overemphasis, if being a Christian primarily is about your personal, individual relationship with God, then yes, social issues and the way that it affects other people is secondary Mm -hmm. and is not central. But the reality is all throughout history, Old and New Testament, it was a people of God, a community of believers, and you are saved into a body of Christ inextricably connected. It's impossible to be a lone ranger Christian, you know, and even in scripture at times when the prophets felt like they were lone rangers Mm -hmm. because it seemed like no one was listening. God affirms, you're not alone. You're not the only one. I got Mm 7,000. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's like, hey, even when you feel that, it's never true. And so I think, yeah, shifting from like, hey, yes, of course, it's personal, but it's always communal. And every expression throughout history and in the future, our hope of heaven, it's always communal. As you see John's vision and revelation of people of every tribe, tongue and nation, not people sitting in their individual mansions that God built.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That leads us unhelpfully to... I guess, the issue of racial reconciliation, because this picture that that John paints in Revelation, it isn't a monocultural, homogenous unit of one particular race. It's every tribe and tongue together, worshipping the lamb, giving him the honour. And if that's where we're going, why doesn't the church look like that now? Have you got good examples where you can see churches that have embraced this kind of coming kingdom picture of what the United Body of Christ might look like? Can you think of places or experiences that you've had where you've you've maybe had a little taste of what that's going to be like one day?
0: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've felt that most strongly in communities of creatives and communities of creative believers. A lot of churches... Value diversity in theory mm. and they intentionally recruit people for their staff or leadership to kind of ease their conscience <laughs> but i don 't believe in diversity for diversity's sake in the sense of I went to an all black church when I was in college, and now I do as well, but i'm like those churches were in all black neighborhoods, so i 'm like that 's fine. I think the makeup of a church primarily should reflect whatever community it's in, mm. so if you are in a diverse community, then it ought to be diverse, but if you 're in a predominantly white area you don't necessarily need to go seek out people of color just so you feel good but you still need to understand the limitations of where you're at and to value not just diversity in your congregation but in your thinking one of the things for me that I realized after I graduated from Bible College was okay I was talking to a friend who is one of the few other people of color at our school and he says you know when I came here my roommate was white my classmates were white most of my professors were white and male, I would add. And then he goes, also, even the books we read, almost all of our textbooks Mm. were by white men. Mm. And I say this, I say, look, in Western nations, Christian culture as a whole has been whitewashed. I said, imagine for a moment, if you went to a Bible college or seminary, and let's say 80, 90% of your professors were Asian women, Mm. also, All the theologians that they studied and quoted and modern pastors were also Asian women and also 60 to 70 percent of your classmates were Asian women. Mm -hmm. You would be like, what is up with this school? (laughs) Like (laughs) if you have an imbalance that's that significant, there's no way that that's not going to affect the way that that school teaches, even if they're not intentionally. And so mm-hmm. this is how I explain white privilege and how it affects the church, right? Mm-hmm. What I'm not saying is that white people are intentionally skewing mm-hmm. things to benefit themselves or intentionally perverting the gospel to benefit themselves. I'm saying they are perverting the gospel unintentionally mm-hmm. because they're not listening to other people. Mm-hmm. And so it's impossible to not see things through our own lens. That's actually not a problem. Mm-hmm. problem is when we believe that our lens is not biased. So with black theology or Asian theology or Latin American theology, it's always that Latin American theology. Mm -hmm. With white theology, it's Orthodox theology. Yeah, just you know, theology. it's just theology, right? And so until Christian education and culture as a whole in Western nations starts to reflect the body of Christ, then it's going to be biased to an unhealthy degree. It's going to be prejudiced. It's going to be exclusionary. And so that's what I see the main problem is. So I would say, you know, even if your particular church, doesn't have a lot of diversity because of where it's at you don't throw your hands up and say oh well you know we're just in this you seek it out because you value it and so hey all right there's no black people in your town or wherever you live but your leadership can intentionally read books incorporate theology from places and people that they don't normally get because they want a rounded out holistic balanced understanding of the gospel because the same gospel, the same concepts preached through other people's experiences take on different meanings. Mm. Let me just give a few examples that I've had. I had the privilege to visit Hong Kong and I was performing at a conference there and there was a woman who was a uh, teacher at a seminary in the Philippines and she was talking on prayer. And uh, she was talking about how in Western cultures, people talk a lot. (laughs) There's a lot of preaching, uh, books are really long, and there's a lot of theology. Talk, 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 talk. And even in your prayers, a lot of words. You talk, 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 talk. She goes, well, in a lot of Asian cultures across the board, Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, Cambodian, she goes, Asians are really embracing of silence, Mm -hmm. of solitude, of quiet, of meditation, of tea time. And so she goes, when you take these ancient Asian cultural practices of silence and solitude, and they come in contact with Christian prayer. Something beautiful and particularly Asian happens Mm -hmm. to Christian prayer. And so then she went on to speak about praying from the perspective of an Asian woman. Mm -hmm. And she had insight into prayer that I had never heard. Now, was she the smartest person I've ever heard speak on prayer? Not necessarily, but she was the most Asian, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so it's the same thing. And one more example, I remember one time I had graduated college and I realized, again, in the American context, I was studying theology and I had never read a single book by Dr. Martin Luther King, Mm. who was a theologian, a preacher, a minister, and had written dozens of books, right? Mm. So I remember reading a book by him. And he was talking about when he was at a meeting and he got a phone call and someone ran in the meeting and said, uh, Dr. King, you need to leave right now. We just got a phone call. You need to take it. So he gets on the phone and they said, uh, a bomb went off at your home and your whole family was there. And he's telling the story and he doesn't know what happened to his family. So he rushes out of the meeting, drives home. And thankfully, his family was in the back of the house, but someone threw a bomb through the window. It exploded in their living room. And so a group of very sad and angry black folks had gathered around his house, and they were wanting to go to the side of town where white folks lived and where the KKK lived, and they wanted to burn it down. And he gets on what's left of his porch, and he says, brothers and sisters— We are not to be overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. We are Christians. We will love our enemies because that is the gospel. Now, this is the thing. I had heard plenty white preachers preach that truth, right? The Bible says, Jesus says, love your enemies. Anyone can do good to those who do good to them, right? Like I'd heard that so many times from white people, but as a black person, and not just as a black person, even someone who wasn't black, to hear that coming out of the mouth of someone moments after the KKK tried to murder Mm -hmm. his entire family because of the color of his skin. It just takes on a different meaning. That truth of the gospel can never mean what it means coming from a white male in my context. And so hearing it from him In his book, for the first time, it meant all of what it was
1: supposed to mean. That's so good. Let's imagine that some of our listeners are looking at their bookshelf Mm -hmm. and they realize that what you've said about the ethnic origins of the authors, Mm -hmm. they are all white. Where might they go? Can you think of maybe three books from authors of different races, different contexts that might help someone just get started to read more widely?
0: Yeah. Honestly, if anybody is hearing this, I personally like you can shoot me a message through my email. I have a list of books that have been helpful. And to me, though, it's not only reading directly theology. It's getting context for our theology and our world. So whatever nation you live in or, you know, for me in America, I know England, I know South Africa, you know, places like this. It's been just as helpful to read, for example, the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. And that was not directly a theology book, but he was a Christian, a former slave who escaped slavery. And hearing him talk about the history of America and him wrestle through his faith in that context, it really affected my theology a lot. So I would say, you know, get some context for wherever you're at, the history and modern. Read theology, of course, but then also read the narratives, read the philosophy, understand the thinking. And so when I'll read a theology book, but I'll also read a book like The New Jim Crow, for example, which talks about the prison system in America. And again, as Christians, what we're called to Visit those in prison, to care for the captives. And how can I live that out if I don't even understand the plight and how people in my context are in prison and why they're in prison and all these things? But off the top of the head, the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, My Bondage and My Freedom, is one of the most compelling books I've ever read. And also, it wasn't in the book, but another thing, he has something called Letter to My Former Master, I think, where literally he escaped from slavery, became an abolitionist, and ended up publishing a letter in the newspaper to his former slave master. And at the end of the letter, he addresses him directly. His name was Thomas Ault. And he goes, um, there is no roof under which you would be more safe than mine. I would consider it a privilege to show you how a man ought to treat his brother. He invites his slave master over for dinner. <laughs> and, and you know what he said? I believe white people are the victims of slavery as well in a different way. And what he meant by that was, of course, black folks were the victims of slavery, but so were white people because they were born into a context from childhood. Their parents taught them that black folks were not humans, were less than human. And they were brainwashed from childhood into believing that. it's nearly impossible to not believe that right most people born into a context like that if you were born and your parents were in the kkk you're probably going to grow up to be a racist so that's one book i personally love i love autobiographies because i feel like it's a story um, but also it's history and theology all wrapped up together there's an autobiography of asada shakur who was a black panther that i thought was amazing i read a book called asian feminist theology there is Oh man, there's several. Yeah, shoot me an email through my website, and I'll send you a list—a list list of books.
1: Yeah, Micah, thank you so much. We've we've been on an amazing journey with you. Thank you for inspiring us to think about how the arts can serve God, how justice is essential to our discipleship, how racial reconciliation is part of our Christian service in the world. Is there anything that you would hope that we talk about that you haven't had a chance, or is there anything else you want to say?
0: In January. I released an album called A Time Like This and it front to back is dealing with a lot of different social justice issues and I'm I'm really really proud of it but I also created I wrote an 80 page commentary to go alongside with the album which is on my website but yeah the album is called A Time Like This and then the commentary is called A Time Like This 101 and if you go to my website which is just my name michaelbornay.com you can click on the blog tab and you can basically read I'm going deeper for every single there's 16 tracks and I really expand on some of the themes on the
1: album so yeah definitely check those things out and all my music is actually free download we'll check out the website we'll look at the album and uh, you will be inspired you'll be encouraged so thank you so much michael for joining us god bless you and uh, may he use you to further the kingdom and demonstrate the gospel Speaking with Micah in the hidden recesses of the Music City Convention Centre, I couldn't stand up as my legs had gone to sleep. But my mind was on fire as I tried to process how we, the church, can nurture and encourage the artists and the activists among us. How do we empower generations to speak up about the issues that scripture reminds us over and over are essential to the heart of God? How do we help the rising generation have the courage to seek justice through using the gifts and talents that God has allowed them to steward for him? I thought of my time as a youth worker, where I'd been focused on making sure the young people in my care were grounded in biblical doctrine, but I hadn't modelled to them that justice is an essential part of their discipleship. Listening to Micah, I was challenged about another disciple shift that needs to occur. We must make sure we release the gifts and skills of this generation to seek first the kingdom of God and pursue God's call on their lives, whatever the cost. this podcast we're on a mission to help christians rethink discipleship by being more faithful to scripture and therefore more holistic in our praxis. to help us on that mission please rate this podcast wherever you have accessed it from and spread the word on social media i am krish Kandaya and this is the disciple Shift podcast join us again soon